Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about communal guilt and intergenerational punishment. This is a subject I touched on very briefly on my last live stream. Uh, the idea that children can be punished for the guilt of their parents and vice versa, by the way. So sometimes children can be saved by the righteousness of the parents and so forth. And so this, this concept has a lot in common with the concept of communal guilt. This is a, a very foreign concept to us as, as Westerners, the idea that there's blood guilt that is shared equally among tribes of individuals, that one individual can be guilty for the sin of others. And this is the same concept as intergenerational punishment. The two go hand in hand. So we're going to talk briefly about a Semite ideas of kinship, and community and guilt and uh, talk about how they viewed the world and uh, processes and process changes within God within the Bible. So it should be pretty interesting and uh, it does, does have some implications for how we see the Bible and treat the Bible and treat passages of the Bible and just our perceptions of what's going on within the text of the Bible. So I'm going to be quoting from, just to set the stage, a lot of, of William Robertson Smith. Now, he did the lectures on the religion of the Semites. It's a book that you can find for free on Google Books. You can find the first series, and then he has a second and third series as well. Very informative book about the the whole, <laughs> one, one, one of the, primary ones that I do suggest reading if you want an in-depth uh, expose of uh, Semite religion and to Semite concepts. He goes over blood sacrifices and, and uh, just every single aspect of religion in the Semite world. So it, it's very informative, but we're going to pull out a couple of his paragraphs to try to understand how he describes the Semite idea of kinship. Kinship is a very important reoccurring concept within his book. He writes this, that antique conception of kinship is participation in one blood, which passes from parent to child and circulates in the veins of every member of the family. The unity of the family, or Dan, is viewed as a physical unity, for the blood is the life, an idea familiar to us from the Old Testament. And it is the same blood and therefore the same life that is shared by every descendant of the common ancestor. The idea that the race has a life of its own, of which individual lives are only parts, is expressed even more clearly by picturing the race as a tree, of which the ancestor is the root or the stem and descendants the branches. This figure is used by all the Semites and is very common both in the Old Testament and in the Arabian. And so you might uh, think instantly of Paul, the apostle in, in Romans, uh, describing uh, Israel, their branches being cut off and the Gentiles being grafted in. And so there is this idea that there is a community, the community shares a lifeblood, and the, there is a communal kinship. This, this is a people group that's being formed. So let's, let's read another paragraph. It's, it's, not, it's not the exact next paragraph in his book, but it is a little bit later in this, the same area. But that circle, again, corresponds to the circle of kinship. For the practical test of kinship is that the whole kin is answerable for the life of each of its members. 
by the rules of early society, if I slay my kinsmen, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, the act is murder. So remember in the Bible, when someone murders another, um, that person is guilty of that murder, regardless if it's intentional or unintentional. If it's unintentional, the individual was able to flee to a city of refuge at which he was uh, going to go through a trial to determine whether he did it intentionally or not. And if it was an intentional murder, he'd be set out and executed. If not, they would they would uh, stay in that city for some time until there's like a year of forgiveness, and then they would be allowed to go outside that city. But remember, bloodshed within the kinship, he writes this, by the rules of early society, I'm rereading this, if I slay my kinsmen, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, the act is murder and the punishment by expulsion from the kin. So you're kicked out of the community. If my kinsman is slain by an outsider, I and every other member of my kin are bound to avenge his death by killing the manslayer or some member of his kin. Remember, people are regarded as groups. So if tribe A kills someone from tribe B, then tribe B will retaliate by killing someone from tribe A, not necessarily the original murderer. Because these, these people are viewed as, as one people, one group. So it doesn't matter if you kill the person who actually committed the murder, you're, you're, you are in effect killing the murderer by killing someone of his associated clan. It is obvious that under such system, there can be no involuntable fellowship except between men of the same blood. For the duty of blood revenge is paramount and every other obligation is dissolved as soon as it comes into conflict with the claims of blood. I cannot bind myself absolutely to a man, even for a temporary purpose, unless during the time of our engagements he is put in a kinsman's place. And so the, the, the paragraphs uh, surrounding this talk about communing with people and how even eating meals with someone uh, associated you with that person to some extent, uh, such that it even gave you rights as kinsmen just to share meals with individuals. Very interesting concepts. But scrolling down, and this is a, a far later point in his book, he writes this. The members of one kindred looked on themselves as one living whole, a single animated mass of blood, flesh, and bones, of which no member could be touched without all members suffering. This point of view is expressed in Semitic tongues in many familiar forms of speech. In the case of homicide, Arabian tribesmen do not say the blood of M or N has been spilt, naming the men. They say our blood has been spilt. In Hebrew, the phrase by which one claims kinship is, I am your bone and your flesh. Both in Hebrew and Arabic, flesh is synonymous with clan or kindred, kindred group. To us, all this it seems mere metaphor. <laughs> Remember, we're reading the Bible and we see things like, oh, my flesh is your flesh, things like that. Like uh, when a man and woman come together and are one, oh, that's just metaphor. Um, but the ancient mind, he points out, didn't think that way. He says, to us, all this seems mere metaphor, from which no practical consequences can follow. But in early thought, there is no sharp line between the metaphorical and the literal, between the way of expressing a thing and the way of conceiving it. Phrases and symbols are treated as reality. So think about that. And think about that in relation to the whole Bible. How metaphor and reality 
There, there's not a sharp distinction between as you describe something that that's that's how it was in the ancient mind. Uh, people, the two would become one in the case of man and wife. This is more than just a mere metaphor. There is a uniting aspect. There is an idea that uh, all flesh is one blood in, in, the, in the, the language of Paul. And uh, he, was, he was drawing on these types of ideas that are already present in the culture to make to make grander ideas and try to argue to people who might not even believe his point. He's arguing a certain uh, aspects, drawing on familiar parts of their culture. Again, I'll just read it again. But in early thought, there was no sharp line between the metaphorical and the literal, between the way of expressing a thing and the way of conceiving it. Phrases and symbols are treated as realities. So talking about communities, I think one illustrative example in the Bible are the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites are famous for being in uh, Joshua and uh, Israel's invading the promised land and the Gibeonites are like, hey, we don't want to die. And so let's go to these people and then make a covenant with them. But uh, we don't want to say that we're close by because they really want us out of this land. They just want to kill us all and take our land. So we'll pretend to be a far away people. And so they go through this whole mock charade, making all their their, their camels real tired and, and uh, all, all their provisions all worn out like they're on a long journey. And they get to Israel and they approach Joshua and they're like, hey, let, let's make a covenant here. Uh, we're from a very, very far away. It's, it's not a close city at all. It's not one even near us. It's very, very far away. Let's make this covenant um, that we are going to be allies. We're, you know, we're going to be kind of the same congregation, people group. And Israel's like, this is a good idea. These people are far, far away. They certainly are in a city right next to us. And uh, it says, and Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation sort of them. This is something that they didn't clear with God. It said they did not ask counsel from the Lord for this because God would have said, don't make counsel with these people because this is your promised land. And so it's, it's treated as a covenant they made uh, hastily that God wouldn't want them to have made. But once the covenant is made, it's absolute. It doesn't matter if they came into the covenant under false pretenses. It doesn't matter. God is going to enforce this covenant. And so in Joshua 9, 19, he says, but all the leaders said to the congregation, because they go to these cities, and it turns out, it turns out, in fact, these cities are right next to where they are. Um, and the congregation's like, these guys lie to us. Let's just kill them and take their stuff. And they say, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us. And because of the oath that we swore to them. And so in, in Joshua's time, he, he makes a covenant with these people. And guess what? It holds throughout the Bible. Now let's fast forward. Past the time of the judges. Now you're to the time of King Saul. There's reading of 2 Samuel 21.1. Now there was famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So this ancient promise, remember the time of the judges is 400 years. At least 400 years ago, this covenant is made. And yet, um, Saul is being held to this covenant. Saul and his house. So Saul does something and his household now has to, is to blame. 
So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. And the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but the remains of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So Saul is taking it upon himself to, to cancel this covenant and, and, and kill them. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do to you, and how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? There's an idea that there's an injustice happening. There's a violation of covenant. And this needs to be atoned in some fashion. There's communal guilt that needs to be equalized. And um, it's kind of shocking how this does get resolved. They say it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it us for to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do to you? And they say to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel... Let seven of his sons be given to us, that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. And so in order to make atonement, seven of Saul's sons are taken out of his household and given to the Gibeonites and they hang them. And this actually appeases God. Remember, this famine is from God. This, this atones for the violation of covenant. Skipping forward, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together, and they were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of the barley harvest. And they buried the sons of Saul and the son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zela, in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all the king commanded, and after that God responded to the plea for the land. Remember, the land's being punished because of this violation of covenant. It, the whole people are being punished for the sins of one man. And the sins of one man are atoned for out of his own household. His, his sons are being used for that atonement. Let's talk next about the Malachites. Kind of the opposite thing happens. So the Malachites had opposed Israel coming out of Egypt. So this is 400 years ago again. And this is uh, where uh, Saul, Saul is commanded to kill the Amalekites because of, you know, because of what they did. And thus says the Lord of hosts, this is 1 Samuel 15 too. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in imposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So this is an entire people group getting punished for something that happened 400 years ago. In the same vein, uh, just skipping forward a few verses, Paul's talking to the Kenites. And he tells them to go and depart. Go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed, showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Remember, everyone involved in coming out of Egypt is dead. These people are people groups. Uh, remember how we, how we uh, in, introduced this concept that people are blood-related. They're blood kin. They're treated as one people. They're one member's actions is treated as the actions of the people group. And we're seeing this play out here. These Kenites, uh, they are... They are let go. Why? Because they showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And so Saul, he is in this mindset where people groups are judged by their actions as a whole and treated by, the, by their past actions. There's intergenerational uh, punishment that's commanded by God. God is involved in this, in, in striking down 
the Amalekites. This is God saying, this is what these people did in the past. They're currently going to be punished for that. This is intergenerational strife, conflict, punishment uh, as people groups because of membership with clans or tribes. This is a very important concept. So sometimes you're reading the Bible, you might be missing things and thought processes if you're not in the mindset. And so one another example is atonement for unsolved murders. Remember, killing someone who's a kinsman is a punishable offense. Banishment from being a kinsman, death, execution. And so there are there is this interesting passage that talks about unsolved murders. What happens when you come across a dead body? How do you make these things right? You're not able to solve this crime, but something needs to happen to set the world right again. There's some sort of imbalance uh, of justice, of atonement that needs to happen. Deuteronomy 21.1, if in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed them, then your elders and your judges shall come out and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. <laughs> You're going to go like take a tape measure, then they don't use tape measures. But, and the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and has not pulled a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. And the priests, sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister and bless in the name of the Lord. And all the elders of the city nearest to this land man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor our eyes uh, see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of the innocent blood in the midst of your people, Israel, so that their blood get, guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of an innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So they, if they were not to do this ritual, um, then they would be guilty of that act. Communally, they would be guilty and they're risking punishment from God. Notice the prayer imploring God to accept atonement and to forgive them for this thing that they did not do. Uh, objectively, they, they did not do it. They're innocent of it. But they get the blame because they're the closest people to where that thing happened. And it's probably a kinsman who did it. So there is this communal guilt that either it needs to be found out or atoned in some fashion. We do see God punishing entire groups of people for the sins of one individual. So let's talk about Achan next, probably cousin to 4chan. But Achan and uh, Israel losing wars because of this one individual. This again is in Joshua. If you notice from, from the Bible, a lot of our stories about communal guilt come from the earlier parts of the Bible, and there's a reason for that that we'll get into. So Joshua 7.1, But the people of Israel broke faith in regards to the devoted things for Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabi. And this, the, this blood relationship that's being set out here is for a purpose because your, your lineage did matter. This is your people group. This is your blood. This is who gets communal uh, guilt. So these 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 trees, these familiar trees that uh, we see throughout the Bible. You know, we we as Westerners just want to skip over that. It doesn't mean anything to us. But this is their blood. This is their clan. This is their tribe. This is who they're related to. This is who they are, and it matters for them in this context. All these, whoever these sons are. 
son of Zariah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. The anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. So they go to war and they lose this war. And Joshua's like, what, what gives? Um, what's, what's happening? And God says, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. Well, Israel hasn't sinned. It was one individual within Israel, but there's communal guilt for this action of one individual. This one individual did something and all of Israel suffers as a consequence. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put among them their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy these things from among you. And so what happens? Uh, and he who has taken the devoted things shall be burned with fire. This is Joshua telling everyone this is what's going to happen. With the devoted things, they should be burned with fire. He and all he has, because he has not transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Joshua 7:24. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zariah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, all, all the things that he took that he wasn't supposed to. And then they took his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his donkeys, and his sheep, in his tent and all that he had and they brought them to the valley of Angkor where they cover them with rocks they, they stone them all to death kids donkeys sheep everyone gets killed together communal punishment family punishment for the sins of one individual the sons being punished for the crimes committed by the father the same thing happens to the household of Korah and uh and it seems that some of the sons of Korah were excluded, but not all of his children, like his adult sons who weren't part of his rebellion. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says that they did survive these sons. And elsewhere in the Psalms, some of the Psalms are attributed to the sons of Korah. But his household does die indeed for his sins. Those who presumably are not of, of age to decide for themselves which, who to serve. And so Korah rebels against God and, and uh, he opposes Moses and Moses says, okay, how about you and all your people who oppose me, uh, you go over here and I'll go over here. I speak for God um, and you say you speak for God. So we'll kind of figure out here who actually speaks for God. So you go over this side a little bit farther, a little bit farther. And then it says, as soon as he finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belong to Korah and their goods. So this is like servants. This is like children. Uh, this is all their possessions as well. So that they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. So this is communal punishment for the sins, uh, the opposition to God by one individual. So we're kind of seeing how this mentality plays out. One person represents the whole, and the whole represents one person. The actions of one person can be attributed to the group as a whole, and the actions of the group of, as a whole can be attributed to the individuals. There's no difference between, there's, it's not individualistic. We're, we're not in America where everyone is uh, condemned for, 
Uh, America's not like that too much anymore. But everyone's uh, condemned for their own crimes. And if you commit a crime, then you're guilty based on those merits, not based on anything anyone else did. Rule of law type of thing. That That's not their idea here. It is a communal punishment. And we do see that a little bit in America, dep depending on what tribe you're affiliated with the government uh, does like to attack you and condemn you and uh, if you're affiliated with different tribes you are just let go and so we're seeing some of the same thought processes within within the modern legal system so this communal punishment that we have talked about just doesn't extend to the here and now it also extends to intergenerational punishment intergenerational punishment is the idea where sons and daughters or later generations, they receive punishment or partial punishment deserving of their forefathers. Again, the reverse applies as well. Sometimes um, kids are saved for the sake of their fathers, and maybe sometimes fathers are saved for the sake of the children, as we will see moving on. So intergenerational punishment, Exodus 25. You shall not bow down or serve them, false gods, for I, the Lord, I am your God. He, I'm a jealous God. God has jealousy. He has emotions. It, it does irk him. You can irk God. You can uh, make him jealous by worshiping the false gods. He visits, it says he's a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so look at that. He visits iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. So some people have tried to couch this in terms of this is uh, mediation of God's punishment. So this is actually a righteous thing. So sometimes in the Bible, we kind of read that it is a loving uh, thing for God to do. But I don't think in the, ex in the context of Exodus 20, it's meant to say, oh, this, this, is, this is a mercy of God showing these this extended punishment but elsewhere it is so let's turn to numbers 14 7 in Exodus 20 remember it does sound like harsh like here's a carrot and here's a stick I'll beat you with the stick or you could have the carrot take your pick numbers 14 17 gives us a different picture now this is a translation I'm using from someone translating directly from the Hebrew and so it's gonna be a different translation than you're gonna find in even the JPS or the King James or the ESV. But the way it's phrased is very interesting for making the point that's often made by individuals such as Bart Ehrman about intergenerational punishment. Numbers 14.7 Therefore I pray, let the Lord's forbearance be great, as you have declared, saying, Yahweh is slow to anger, abounding in kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, yet not remitting all punishment, but visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children upon the third and fourth generation. So this is about God's forbearance and his mercy. And so the idea being communicated here is that if a father sins, he doesn't get the full punishment. So that's a mercy. God takes some of that punishment that's deserved and then, then divvies it out to later generations. Uh, in, in that way, it's a merciful act so that someone doesn't actually experience the full force of, of what they deserve, what their sin merits. And you know, it does feel unjust that, that the later generations are getting a little bit of that punishment, but this in this context, it's meant to be as a mercy. Again, that context is about mercy, and so you could see the Bart Ehrman point a little bit more clearly. 
Other times that the Bible talks about intergenerational punishment, that mercy isn't so clear and you get the carrot and the stick feel. Like uh, God's just going to punish these later generations. Exodus 34, 6. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy unto the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. This is reiterated in Deuteronomy 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So very similar text in all these different texts, saying kind of the same thing. Sometimes sometimes uh, couched as, as a mercy, sometimes as uh, punishment. Don't cross God or else your kids will get hurt. And we do see God levying this intergenerational punishment. One of the most pronounced examples is Eli's sons. Now, Eli's sons, we we talk about quite a lot on this program because that's a case of a unilateral promise made by God turning into uh, a conditional promise. So you know the original promise wasn't conditional because, because it was changed into a conditional promise. And then later on, it's uh it's entirely revoked altogether. God takes a hard stand against Eli. 1 Samuel 3:11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears will tingle. He's saying, "Listen up. This is going to be spicy. This is going to make you think twice. This is going to raise the hair on your arms. Hair on the back of your neck is going to stand up. Just listen to this. This is this is going to this is going to be some spicy stuff." Uh, people aren't going to like this. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. I will declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. So Eli seemed to be in on the fact that his his uh, sons were standing at the house of God and his seducing women. He says, therefore, I swear to the house of Eli, that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. For, so forever now, Eli's house is cursed. Why? Because of the actions of two individuals in Eli's house. This is a strong reversal from the previous chapter, which described God's forever promise to Eli that his house would stand before him forever. So it goes from that to a conditional to an eternal curse all within the, the span of two chapters. Basically, that's what happens. So notice that Eli's family is cursed because of the actions of certain individuals of that family. This is intergenerational punishment. And this is meant to make everyone's hairs on the back of their neck stand up. This is prefaced like that. This, this is something serious that we should all take heed. Don't do things like this because your entire family can be cursed. And that's part of part of the uh, merit of intergenerational punishment that your kids suffer for your actions so you really you know people actually care about their kids you really shouldn't do evil things because your kids might suffer because of it jumping to jeremiah real quick we see an evidence that god god understands these intergenerational punishments are meant to inspire people to action because people care about their kids so in jeremiah 230 that he laments, he's like, in vain, I have struck your children. 
they took no correction and your own sword devoured your prophets like a raving lion. So sometimes God does things in hopes of correction, um, uh, to mediate, to, to put people on the right path and it's in vain. He did it and there was no result. And then he's perplexed that there's not this result. In vain, I have struck your children. So that is a case of intergenerational punishment, not, not resulting in the results that God expected. And within Jeremiah, we, we do get some foreshadowing that God's going to be doing away with this communal justice and move to a more equitable system of medi mediating judgment. So now let's go to Josiah. Now, Josiah was a righteous king of Israel. A lot of uh, Christian kids are named Josiah because uh, he's a righteous king that reformed Israel. But uh, Manasseh, who was before him, was a very evil king. And so God had promised to punish Israel because of Manasseh. Manasseh's dead. But entirety of Israel is going to be blamed for sins of Manasseh. The provocation that Manasseh gave to God. Uh, God is going to punish Israel as a result. And so Josiah comes along and God is watching what Josiah does. And he's like, hey, this guy's pretty good. I can't, I can't punish them. I can't punish all of Israel for Manasseh's sins during this reign of a righteous king. I'm going to skip him. We're going to skip over him, go to the next generation, and that's when the punishment is going to come. So Josiah says, But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse for you, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I have also heard you. This is prayer affecting God. Josiah prays, the prayers of the righteous avails much. I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers. That means he's, he's going to die and be gathered to his fathers, maybe in some sort of shield type, type of setting. And you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back the word to the king. And so still, this, uh, scrolling forward, we're at 2 Kings 30, or 23, 26. Still the Lord did not turn away from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. So Josiah gets skipped, but God's still burning in wrath and brings about judgment against all of Israel for the sins of Manasseh, who's already dead. But it skips Josiah because he's righteous. Notice again, though, the collective guilt and the collective innocence. Josiah is a righteous king. It doesn't matter. Israel, you know, they, they get to latch on to whatever the king is. Manasseh is evil. Uh, Israel gets the evilness. Uh, Josiah is righteous. They're counted as righteous and the punish, punishment is skipped. It's, it's collective guilt. The same thing happens with Ahab. Remember, Ahab's a wicked king that God ends up killing. And so he says, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up. I'll cut you off uh, from every male, bond or free in Israel. And I'll make your house like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, son of Aha. For the anger of, to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. Made Israel to sin. So if there's a comment that says God made Israel do something, people say, oh, look, Calvinism. But no, kings within the Bible make Israel sin. What that means is, you know, they, they're, they're the leader. They, they have responsibility for the actions of the people. They set precedence. And so they make Israel sin in that regard. Not a Calvinist concept whatsoever. But this, this Ahab prays to God. 
and he humbles himself and God reverses that curse. So 1 Kings 21, 29, have you seen now how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I'll bring the disaster upon his house. So the punishment's still coming, but because he repents, he gets to die before it all happens. And then the later individuals, regardless, the whole of Israel gets punished for this. So those are some examples of intergenerational punishment, but we do have some interesting accounts of intergenerational righteousness or salvation. And this is an extra biblical source, I know, but it's a very interesting one. And it kind of puts you in the mindset of thinking like this, thinking about how God operates in regards to guilt and innocence and what's allowed. And then we're going to talk about some biblical examples after this. So this is coming from Rabbah 4.1, which is a commentary on Ecclesiastes 4.1. Rabbi Judah says of Ecclesiastes 1.4, it refers to the children who were buried early in life because of the sins of their fathers in this world. So let's say there's, there's people who their children die because the parents are neglectful or bad or the children didn't deserve death, right? In the hereafter, they will stand with the righteous group in heaven while their fathers will stand with the wicked group in Gehenna. They, the children, will speak before him the Lord of the universe. We Did we not die early only because of the sins of our fathers? Let our fathers exit Gehenim through our merits. He, God, replies to them, your fathers sinned only after your death, and their wrongdoings accused them. Rabbi Judah said in the name of Rabbi Joshua, at that time Elijah, he may be remembered for his good, for there was to suggest a legal defense. He will say to the children, speak before him, Lord of the universe. Uh, which attributes of yours predominates, that of goodness or that of punishment? Surely the attributes of goodness is great and that of punishment small. Yet we died through the sins of our fathers. If then the attribute of goodness exceeds the other attribute, how much more should our fathers come over to us and join us in heaven? Therefore he, God says to them, the children, he, Elijah, has taught you a good defense. Let them come over to you. As it is written, they shall live with their children and shall return. Which means that they, the parents, returned from the descent to Gehenna and were rescued through the merit of their children. So what we see here is uh, there's children in heaven who died who were without sin. And since the children died because of the sins of their parents, uh, they argue to God that their parents shall be saved for their goodness, you know. Uh, because they're, they're, it's basically an equaling out of justice. So imagine you're in heaven and you have a relative maybe who has died and was not a believer. It, in this example, you can make positive legal cases to God to bring that individual into salvation based on your merit. Based on, based on things that you brought to the table. And we do see this in the Bible. We see it with Let's, let's use the case of Noah. So who, who's righteous in the Noah account in Genesis 6? Noah's righteous. Not his children, not other individuals, but other individuals are saved on account of him. And so this is explicitly pointed out later on in Ezekiel. Remember, once we get to Ezekiel, now people are being punished for their own sins. Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, I and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, 
Daniel, and Job were in it. They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. This is a reversal of common practice. He's saying, this: you guys are so wicked that I'm not even going to save children for the sake of their parents. Again, this is a reversal. This, this is how it's being couched as a reversal of normal process. In the normal process, if you're righteous, your children, they also share in that righteousness. Your children, they, they, they get under your umbrella of righteousness and they can be saved as a result, not based on their own actions or inactions. It's repeated again in verse 20. If I send pestilence into the land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives and their from their righteousness. So now we need to address briefly critics of intergenerational punishment pointing to specific proof texts in the Bible claiming that intergenerational punishment doesn't work because Ezekiel and Jeremiah talk against it. And uh, I did write about this within my book, Within God is Open, when I cover Ezekiel 18, is that this is a process change. The, the text reads like a process change. If you cross-reference it to Jeremiah, there is a process change. And guess what? There is a part of the Talmud that I just discovered today that does affirm the things that I'm, I'm saying right now, that there is a process change with the way that God handles justice within Ezekiel. This is coming from the Talmud. Rabbi Yosef Bar Chanina says, Moses made four decrees upon the people of Israel, which four prophets came and canceled. Moses said, Exodus 34, 7, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children. Ezekiel came and canceled this. Ezekiel 18, 4, the one who sins shall die. So now let's go look at the text. Let's start with Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah is chronologically before Ezekiel. And I, th I think this is key to understanding what's going on here. So in Jeremiah 31, there's a prediction of what's going to come in the future. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I'll watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days... So these are new days. These are coming up. Um, these are these are future days. In those days, they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So the illustration being given there is that the parents will drink something sour and the kids will taste it. So like if the, the parents are sinning, then the kids are getting punished for those sins. He's saying no longer is that going to be a saying in Israel. But everyone shall die for his own in iniquity. Again, this is a future time. This is not yet. This will be a future proverb being reversed, and it's a future system of judgment that's going to be implemented. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. People will die for their own sins. Now fast forward to Ezekiel 18. So this is the future time. He says this, What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall be no more used by you in Israel. We see the process change. We see that change. We say, God, God says, I'm going to reverse this. You're no longer going to use this. And then we see in Ezekiel 18, him implement that. So that God's changing a process. There was a process of communal guilt, intergenerational guilt but that itself is reversed. 
Ezekiel 18 is worth a full read, so you probably have to go do that on your own because I'm not going to read the whole thing. But basically it describes in great detail that uh, someone who sins is going to die for their sin. Someone who's righteous is going to be blessed for their own righteousness. And it doesn't matter that the son could be evil and the father could be good and the grandfather evil or the grandfather good. And then the, the son of the grandfather of the father, he's going to be he's going to be evil and then the, the son is good and each person is going to be treated like an individual. This is revolutionary. Uh, this is, this is something new for them. They are, they are reading something that is not a proverb. Remember there are proverbs about the sons being punished for the sins of the parents. It, it's not about this individual punishment, individual guilt. So this is a new development within the history of Israel that's implemented and it seems to be still in effect today. So that's how you reconcile these passages. They don't have to be trumped. One, one doesn't trump the other. You don't say, oh, intergenerational punishment's not a thing because look over here in Ezekiel. This is God changing. God's changing his standards of justice, his standards of righteousness, implementing new systems of meeting out punishment. We saw in Jeremiah where he's punishing children in vain. Maybe he's saying this is just, just doesn't work. This, this system of justice does not work to affect what needs to change on earth. And so you have to implement this individual justice system. That could be one of the, one of the catalysts for the change. It could also be there's a change in community perception. They're not seeing themselves as that, that same blood to the extent that they had before. Now that they're in exile, now that they're being ripped apart from the outside, it, it might not make make practical sense anymore. So these, these are changes that can happen. This is open theism. God is observing the world and changing his process, learning about men, changing his, his standards of justice in response to events on earth. In real time, we, we see it happen. We, we see God's system change. And open theism accounts for this. The, the systems where God is static, doesn't change, never learns about man, never responds to man, those systems can't account for this in the same way that open theism does. I might, as a father, change the rules in my household based on this, my kids, how old they are, their states of mind, how many kids I have, those processes of justice and meeting out punishment might change based on that. You know, some of my sons might be culpable for the actions of some of my other sons, depending on the age of everyone involved, the older being responsible for the sins of the younger. If, if one of the younger kids are destroying something and the older ones aren't paying attention to them, then they're guilty of that destruction. You know, those types of things I can implement as a father and change those systems as my house progresses, as I see my children and interact with my children and see how they change. So this is not foreign to our concept or what we're familiar with on a day-to-day -day basis. This, this, is, this is what we're used to, how reality works. But I would draw us back to something that we are unfamiliar with, this idea that the tribe is one people, the tribe... And traditionally within the Bible is considered as a single actor who individuals were guilty for the sins of the tribe and the tribe was guilty for sins of individuals and vice versa that sometimes individuals their righteousness such as Josiah would be shared among the tribe and the tribe's righteousness would apply to individuals we, we do see that throughout the Bible this, this communal sense this this uh, being one blood one kin 
without these hard and fast individualistic distinctions that we, we have in the Western mindset. So keeping that in mind, a lot of the Bible starts making sense. These intergenerational punishments, how, how nations 400 years later can be punished for sins of their ancestors. This is one person. This is a perpetual person through the ages. And so all your sins accumulate in that people group. That people group is responsible for all past actions of that people group. And, you know, there's sometimes ways to subvert it. Like Josiah subverts punishment for a time. Uh, that God sometimes changes his mind. Sometimes a prayer can do it. Uh, so it's, it's not a hard and fast rule that the justice will always be mediated out in all circumstances. It can be subverted, but we do see cases in which it's not. When it hurts future generations, people who had nothing to do with the original sins. Uh, this, this is standard practice in the Bible. People are treated, tribesmen, kinsmen are treated as one actor, one individual, one people group, one blood. And I think it bears repeating the words of William Robertson Smith when he says, But in early thought, there is no sharp line between metaphor and literal, between the way of expressing a thing and the way of conceiving it. Phrases and symbols are treated as reality. Being flesh of my flesh, uh, blood of your blood, that is their way of thinking. They are one individual. Anyways, questions or comments, put that down below. Start a thread on the God is Open Facebook page. Thank you for listening. Oh, 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 oh,